welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. It's Katie and Arlene back here for another update. And I'm going to ask Katie, as usual, what's going on? What's happening at your place? I can say that the boy child came in from playing outside yesterday and dumped literally a quarter cup of feed out of his pants when he took them off. So that's how nice. my life is going. That usually comes um, out of the rubber boot, but the pants, that's impressive. Yeah, was it no, in the pockets or in the roll shorts. up? I have no idea. Like, <laughs> he started yeah, because normally it's the roll up, you know, like, yeah. I, I don't know where the hell he, maybe it was in his undies, which seems really itchy, but whatever. And then does he incorporate that into the mini tractor play or is that a oh robot God, vacuum you know job? The, the best part of all the tractor play is that for the sound effect of whatever he's doing, he'll say combine corn, combine corn, combine corn, combine corn, and then he'll switch implements and he'll say disc, 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 disc. Oh, that is the case. And when he gets really into it, you can't walk like anywhere in the house because you're standing in his field. Right. Yeah. And don't mess with it. Like that's a zero tail field. It's wow. like <laughs> angry, angry little kid. No, he's very sweet. Other than that, nothing really. Yeah, going life. to Chicago this weekend, so I guess I can report back next week. Leaving the farm. That's exciting. By, and is by, that well, not by myself. By yourself? Going to meet without one of my your friends. family. No kids, no husband. Whoa. It's very it angry children about this plan. I promised to buy them toys, so now they're happy again. Whatever. Yeah. What's going on in your world, Arlene? So yeah, like you said, we're on a little bit of a vacation. So, you know, farm life, it's kind of a, a combo of people, myself and some of the kids are at the cottage right now. It's under an hour from the farm. So we've got some help at home. Hugh will come up for a couple of days. My daughter will come up for some of it. So it's, it's all over the place. So it's good that it's close by. We've got lots of lakes in our area. So it's my parents very generously rented a couple of cottages so that we can all kind of spread out. We all had a bunch of kids. So it's me and my two sisters and our families and all of our children. So it's a bit of chaos and there's various number of adults depending on the time of day and the day of week, because it's also near my sister's farm. So she and her husband are back and forth so they can do chores. So farming vacations, man, like the kids are living it up and the rest of us are still fitting in some work, but that's all right. We get to go out on the lake and my brother-in-law rented a boat so we can get a little bit of time out on the water. I don't think it's quite powerful enough for tubing, especially now that our kids have gotten a little bit bigger, but there's an area on this lake where they can go to a cliff and jump off the rocks. So <laughs> we'll hope that no one gets hurt out there. It's all good. Uh -huh. Everybody does it, Katie. We're trying to, you know, like let our kids learn to trust their bodies and live on the edge. It's all good. Yeah. And bad news is that I got a tattoo last week. And I was very excited about it. I booked it months ago and did not think through the fact that you're not supposed to swim for a few weeks after getting a tattoo. So now I'm at this cottage and I have to watch everyone else go swimming and I can't go swimming. And I really do enjoy being in the water. So I may have to wrap it up in some waterproof bandaging a few times and go jump off that cliff because I also want to trust my body and throw myself off of high objects. Your definition of a fun time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have to yes, say that yeah. I appreciate that we're now old enough that the phrase bad decision tattoo ends with swimming and not tequila. The tattoo was not a bad decision. I've been thinking about it for oh, years, months ago, because they're all backed up because all the tattooers were closed for so long during the pandemic that they have huge wait lists. So I wasn't going to give up a, an appointment when I finally got one. Oh, so here's one more update for you. Speaking okay. of months ago, we need to replace the windows upstairs in our house because our house is 117 years old. So many of our windows are also 117 years old. So we booked to have windows replaced more than a year ago. Mm -hmm. And yes, it took a long time to get the windows in. But I mean, we paid a deposit and then we just never heard anything back. 
you know, it's a lumber yard that does installation. Never heard anything. Never heard anything. Right. Did you're assuming. Yeah. You're assuming supply chain, whatever, whatever. Right. They're just going to give you an excuse for why they're not in. They showed up at eight o'clock yesterday morning with 10 people. No call. No call. No, no. <laughs> so, you know, I'm down here working from home for work right. that makes the money yeah. that pays for shit like windows. And mm -hmm. there's, it was an Amish crew, which is totally cool. I didn't know the Amish men knew those words. And I mean, I am obviously not offended by swearing, but I was impressed. I had no idea. And I <laughs> so honestly, I a don't lot think of they knew language that I was, in your house. Yeah. I don't know that they knew that I was here working either. Thankfully, I did not have any video calls or anything. Well, but, it's good that you were home. Like, how yeah. did they even know that they were just like after more than a year of not no contact, just show up at your house and think they're going to install windows with no warning well and i had been told that they only needed access to the outside and then all these mm -hmm. people walked into my house and were like hey we need access to all the bedrooms and i was like right yeah you me a cleaned up a few things yeah yeah sometimes there's stuff in front of a window yeah oh and i went to put the kids to bed last night and normally their windows their beds are under their windows and both beds were still pulled out into the middle of the room which mm -hmm was a bit of a juggling act with sleeping babies in my yeah. house, but made it happen. Anyway. It all works out. At least the new windows are nice and they're tilt and turn. And, <gasps> and they open and they have screens. They do. They do. Ah, it's very nice. That's very exciting stuff. We have, we have still the original windows in parts of our house, just under the porch area. So in the areas where it's been covered for a long time. Yeah. So they, they open, but they don't have screens, so they're not super functional, but they're so pretty. I do love old windows, but the rest of the house has windows that open, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, I would love to keep the old windows, but we're down to like one that has one original pane of glass left. Right, um, yeah. Because the glass has gotten broken and whatever. So. Yeah, they're yeah. not really all that functional. You can use them for art projects or something, but yeah, to actually use for your house, we know they're not that efficient. Yeah. It's so pretty. Yeah. All right. Anyway, all let's right. go will... on to our guest then. Yep. Let you get back to your vacation. All right. Enjoy. Thank you. Today we're chatting with Jenny Holterman, who is an almond farmer from the state of California. So, Jenny, we start each of our interviews with the same question as a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. We ask, what are you growing? So, this can cover crops, livestock, your family, businesses, and all manner of other things. So, Jenny, what are you growing? So, we grow almonds here in California. We live in the Central Valley of California and our farm is solely almonds. And then of course I have two children. So I'm growing children. I have a four year, almost five year old daughter and a seven year old son. And on our homestead, we like to have a productive homestead that can grow lots of things. So we have a fruit orchard out here on our property. And right now we have flowers in our fruit orchard. So we grow some cut flowers and uh, in about a month or so, we're going to be planting pumpkins. So we'll be growing pumpkins and we have chickens back there too. So, and we've just planted our summer gardens. So we've got all kinds of stuff growing back there now. <laughs> and are those things mostly for your own consumption or do you sell some of those as well? So we sell the cut flowers and the pumpkins and the eggs. Nice. The fruit orchard is kind of just, it's only about two or three years old now. So it's mainly just for our consumption. And our garden is mainly just for us as well. We're both and, from more Northern areas. So basically like apples, maybe pears. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what can you grow in your fruit orchard that I would be jealous about? We have a lot in our fruit orchard. We have about two of everything. So we have some avocados, we have oranges, clementine mandarins, lemons, limes, these fun things called Buddha hands. If you've never heard of those, those are pretty cool. There, it's like a citron where it literally looks like a, a hand. It's yeah, they're fun. Google it. What color uh, are they? <laughs> it's like a lemon, but okay. it doesn't have fruit it's just like it's just the you use it just for zesting oh, okay yeah I'll look it up. So then we also have peaches dreams plums apricots apples pears figs 
I think I got it all. Yeah, <laughs> You've got a big a fruit orchard back Yeah, there. that's a lot more stuff than I can grow for sure. <laughs> so Jenny, I just Googled Buddha's hand while you uh-huh. were talking about it. And the first hit is from the Smithsonian Magazine. And the title is, what the heck do I do with the Buddha's hand? <laughs> They're cool. But yes, people are like, what do I do with this thing? It's mainly used for like zest or like flavoring. It's really good to put it in your vodka, like flavor the vodka. Or you could just put some in your water. It's it's. It's just a fun thing. <laughs> She's one of us. Put it in your vodka. It, uh, <laughs> for, sure. for anyone who's not currently looking at the picture, it kind of looks like if a bunch of bananas and an octopus had a baby. Just yeah. envision. The Smithsonian Magazine says a Buddha's hand citron looks like a lumpy lemon with fingers and smells like heaven. Mm-hmm. So it's cool. <laughs> they are pretty goofy looking. I'll give them that. Jenny, what kind of hens do you have? We have an assorted amount of chickens. We have some of those Americanas that lay the pretty blue eggs. We have the, I never know how to pronounce all the words. We have the wine dots. The We've got the sex links. What else do we have? An assorted. And <laughs> so how, how many hens do you have? We I th- have about a dozen now. Okay. Um, we had a little bit more. They've kind of yeah, we have about a dozen currently. <laughs> These things happen. I have yes. too. I know how that goes. Yes. So can you give our listeners a crash course in almond farming? Sure. So we farm almonds in the Central Valley. I know they're not very common. They really can be grown anywhere else. So there's five areas in the whole world that can grow almonds. And it's the unique Mediterranean climate that we have in the Central Valley of California. It makes it the ideal place to grow them. So we grow about 80% of the world's supply of almonds in California because they literally can't be grown <laughs> anywhere else. So they, they love our California climate. So they, they don't do well in the freeze. Wherever it snows, they would pretty much die. And they love our extreme heat. So this week, on Wednesday, it's going to be our first 100 degree day of the year. And that's pretty much all summer. It's about 100, 110 degrees and the almonds love the heat. So we have that unique climate as well as our soil is great for almonds. So we have a good clay loam soil and that makes it ideal for the almonds to grow here. So we have about a million acres of almonds in California and it runs from about a 400 mile length of our central valley from one end to the next that they can be grown here and they grow on a tree <laughs> so that's a good thing to note not not very many people know that sometimes so they grow on a tree and the tree can live for about 20 to 25 years before their production just is slim to none and you have to rip it out and start off but it goes dormant in the winter and then about february is when it blooms and it is the prettiest time of year to be an almond farmer during bloom and everybody comes out all the everybody comes and wants to take their pictures in the almond blooms because it is so gorgeous they just make the prettiest white and pink flowers and it is the time of year to go out there and enjoy and then it takes about six months all summer long until harvest starts about the end of July through October, depending on the different varieties. And then we have harvest where we literally take a, a like rubber mallet shaker machine, like a, a, a machine comes and takes its rubber arms and wraps it around the tree trunk and shakes the, the L out of it is what we call it. And, and then you get almonds all over the ground. And then we send a sweeper through, which makes them into nice little pretty windrows. And then the harvester comes and picks them up and hauls them to a huller where if you're not familiar with an almond, there's three parts to an almond. We eat the middle part, which is the kernel or the meat that you're familiar with. There's also a shell on the outside of that, which is like a woody textured. And then there's a fuzzy green hull on the outside of that. And after the harvest, they go to a huller, which removes that green fuzzy hull. And then they go to a processor, which sorts them, which sizes them, and removes that shell and then sends the almond off all over the world. But a unique thing, while we're talking about that hull in the shell, a unique thing about almonds is that they're all used. Every part of the almond is used. That shell is used in livestock bedding. They make they burn it for cogeneration for energy. They've even been known to make some beer out of almonds. And they use that hull is really a byproduct that goes to the dairies and the feedlots here in California. And the cows obviously eat that hull and make yummy ground beef and steak for the rest of us to have. But it's a unique product where not many other fruits and vegetables are have a zero waste. And almonds are truly a zero waste product. So all of that water and nutrients go in to make 
lots of different things with almonds. So I know that almonds get a bad rap for needing a lot of water. Are they really worse than other nuts? Not worse, no. more water intensive. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely not. So it's a common misconception. You know, in the media, it was a long, a few years back that it takes a gallon of water to grow an almond. And that's not false, but that's not different than any other nut or fruit tree. Most, you know, when, like I said, we're not just growing that one almond, we're growing that shell and the hull, and that's all used as well as the tree. I mean, we have to water that tree because it's going to be around for about 25 years. So we need to make sure that tree has adequate you know, water and nutrients. And then an interesting thing too, California has some, has no burning laws. We're not allowed to burn our agriculture products. So when we take out an orchard, we have to chip that down into very small pieces of wood chips and incorporate that back into the soil. So we're watering that tree for 25 years, but then we're incorporating that tree when it's gone back into the soil and we till it and disc it back up into the soil. So the, the one gallon of almond seems awfully daunting, but you know, it's not just goes to that one almond, it goes to a lot more other things as well. I think that's the problem with reporting like that is that it doesn't make a very good sound bite to be like, it takes a gallon of water to grow an almond, but also all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Like, perspective. Eh. I'm a big fan of putting things into perspective. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. So am I right in thinking that you're also in the area that grows olives then? Do they take a similar climate? To olives, olives are grown here, but not as there are quite a bit of olives grown in the northern part of California and the northern part of the valley. Not as much where I am farming. I'm from Iowa, so we don't grow almonds or olives or anything really on trees. Some apples, but not much else. How old do the trees need to be before they are productive? I'm assuming you're starting with a relatively small, or do you start your own, or do you get those from a, a tree grower? I'm losing <laughs> That's a my great question. Here, even in terms of <laughs> how you start out and yeah, how long it takes before they're productive. Yeah, that's a great question. So we buy our trees from a nursery, which they grow. They, you know, do all of the cuttings and propagating the tree and they graft it as well. So almonds have to be grafted onto a plum rootstock. An almond is a very shallow rooted tree by itself. So it needs a rootstock that's a little bit more hardy. So all almond trees have a plum rootstock and they do all that at the nursery. So by the time we get the tree, it's a, it's over a year old, but it still takes about three years to grow, like a a harvestable amount of almonds, I would say. There will be some almonds in the first couple years, but it's really nothing worth doing anything. About year three, you're able to harvest a crop. And about year four, it's going to pay for itself to harvest that crop. Yes. And then you talked a bit about taking trees out of production at the end of that that life cycle. Are you taking trees out every year or what kind of what stages are, are your orchards at? Do you have kind of a constant turnover or is that more of a, you know, you'll take a few, you know, some trees out this year and then it might be another five years before you take more out of production? Yeah, so most of the orchards in our area range from about 20 acres to anywhere like 500 acres. So, and when you plant an orchard, you plant it all at once. And so when you take out an orchard, then we'll be taking out, you know, that, that amount of acreage that belongs to that one orchard. For us on our farm, we have most of our orchards are over 10 years old. We do have one that's um, about two years old that we just planted two years ago. And then we do have, we just took out three orchard blocks that are all contiguous. We just took those out at the end of harvest this last year. So we'll be planting those in the fall. And how big are almond trees when they're mature? They're pretty big. Kind of compare like them. really getting a deep dive on the almond yeah. situation here. But. I mean, they would probably be bigger than your standard apple tree that you're probably used to. They're smaller than, I'm not sure if you're like, if you're familiar with like walnut trees, perhaps they're smaller than that. But they, I mean, they're, they're very large trees. You have to, we prune them every year as well. So when they go dormant in the fall, that's when we come through and prune them. We hedge them because they can get so big that the sunlight can't necessarily come in very well. So we hedge, we send a, a tractor mounted hedge through and uh, creates a row of sunlight in through the orchard center rows. So we do, I mean, they can get pretty big if they're not managed, managed properly. And are the almond blossoms fragrant? 
They are. Yeah, it smells really nice in there. I wouldn't, I don't know quite how I would compare the smell to, but it just kind of smells like spring to me. <laughs> we know that, oh, this is the first sight of spring and the cooler weather is kind of behind us and it's going to start being nice in spring. But I always have to say that cautiously to when I'm talking to people from the Midwest because we don't really get cold, cold weather. <laughs> But when it's in the 50s, it's like, oh, that's cold. And in, in February, it starts to warm up to the 60s and 70s. And, and then about May, then it's 100 degrees. And it's that until about October, November. <laughs> I think it's about 56 here today. So, yeah. yeah. And it's I actually... 95 today. <laughs> oh. And I'm I Canadian, ex- so I don't even understand Fahrenheit at all. <laughs> cold, hot. Cool. There yeah, you go, Arlene. Yeah, I, got, yeah. I know 100's warm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually planted some ornamental almond bushes in our front yard this weekend. So I was thinking about this. Oh, how fun. I don't think they'll do anything except maybe smell good. I don't know. Our house is right on the road. So I'm trying to make a bit of a barrier because people slow down and watch us in the front yard. And it's weird. I'd rather they didn't. So I'm trying to like break it up Add some more bit. shrubbery out there Something. so while we're talking about blossoms that leads me to the bee question so i know i've heard in the you know egg media about beehives and like renting hives and moving them around in california not that i know very much about that at all so what do you guys do for pollinators yes so almonds are entirely dependent upon bees we would not have any almonds at all without bees so if you can imagine they're like our best friend and we love them to death so and it takes a lot so we so we have two or three sometimes different varieties of almonds in our orchards and they need the pollen to go from one different one variety to the other variety for us to get a crop so we bring the bees in a couple weeks before heart, before bloom. So they'll come in about the end of January and they'll stay through the end of February, sometimes beginning of March to make sure that, you know, they reach that bloom can be like a two to four week window, depending upon the weather. So we want to make sure those bees are acclimated and as happy and cozy. So when those flowers come out, they're ready to work. So we bring in two hives per acre. So I told you that we have about a million acres of almonds in the state of California. So we bring in about 2 million beehives (laughs) in that like four week window. And as you can imagine, California doesn't have that many beehives alone in our state. So they come from all over. They come from Canada. We get a lot of beehives come from North, South Dakota, even Florida. They come from all over the United States and they come to California for our four week bloom window. But we, we need them too. But it's also a great time, you know, as as you guys know, it's in the February, January timeframe, it's cold in a lot of those places. So we bring the bees here and it's really their first taste of spring. Like they've been fed, you know, the artificial pollen, they've been fed, you know, not beautiful natural things all, all winter. So when they come to California and the blooms are up, oh my gosh, it's like candy for them. They are so excited to have like that fresh, fresh pollen. And almonds are actually one of the most nutritious forms of pollen for the bees. So they're one of the the healthiest things that they have all year long. And because they are just waking up from their hibernation of, of sorts, when they come to California, they actually leave our orchards stronger than they came because it's giving them their first taste of know, flowers for the year, and it helps them rebuild their hives. So we love the bees coming and the bees keepers love them coming to us because they leave stronger than they, than they come. But uh, we pay. It's like bees, bees spring break. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's a great way to explain it. Um, But it's, it can be costly. I mean, that's probably one of the largest checks we write as almond growers for the year is, you know, two hives per acre. It's, it costs a lot of money, upwards of $200 a hive for them to come into our orchards. So it is one of the most expensive things that we pay for, but it's also, I mean, one of the most necessary things because we wouldn't have a crop without those bees too. I know there are local beekeepers, even in our area who ship their hives out and Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's interesting to think about how necessary that is. And I'm sure the bees enjoy it more than 
you know, hibernating and eating sugar water all winter. Do they bottle separate almond blossom honey then before they get sent back? Or how do they just yes. bring their almond honey home with them? So almond honey is actually, as a, for a person, it's really bitter and it's not very appetizing. So the beekeepers don't save it and sell it. It's not something that they keep. They actually, from what I've been told is they give it back to the bees, but it's not something that is good for us really to eat. But when they leave our ours, they go to, you know, cherries and stone fruit up and down the state and oranges and things like that. So they, they get a lot. We get a lot of that yummy tasting honey. <laughs> Yum. Yeah. We, we actually have a number of hives. A lot of our farm is in Prairie Flower Reserve. And so we have a local beekeeper who has, I don't know, 15 or 20 hives at the back of our property. And I say, I love rent paying day because we get just a case of honey for our rent and like, you know, all 15 million or whatever of our tenants paid their rent today, you know, in this case of honey and it's good, good stuff. So it's good to know that we're not missing out on the almond honey. Yes, it's it's good good. for our allergies too. So that's what a lot of people, you know, this time of year when everyone's flaring up with allergies by that local honey that has all that you know, the local that's pollinated all of our local fruit can be really good for our allergies. Mm -hmm. And it's a good excuse to eat more honey, which is a good thing by itself. So how do you market your crop? Are you direct marketing or are you contracting to a company or where do your particular almonds go? Yes. So back about two years ago now, we started direct marketing a portion of our almonds. So our family, our farm is a family farm. So there's lots of different family entities <laughs> involved in our family. So still a, a large portion of ours goes to about three different processors throughout the state, a couple of them here locally. So they mostly go to the processors and then they ship them all over the world. So when we sell to a processor, we really don't know where they end up. <laughs> so mine could be at the Costco or you know, I'll save Mart down the street, or it could end up in China or, you know, Europe. I really don't know. But two years ago, we started keeping a small portion of that back and direct market in it. So we started the Almond Girl label, which was a blog of mine that I had started like eight years ago. And we turned it into a business and started direct marketing our almonds. So we started with just the whole almonds, and then we added sliced, diced, and slivered almonds, but we pride ourselves in keeping them in the raw natural form. So they're not any added, you know, flavorings or anything like that. We want our almonds to be fresh from the family farm. So we started selling them through our website, through our e-commerce, and then we added some wholesale customers. So a number of different restaurants, convenience stores in town, bakeries use our almonds. And then we direct market through farmer's markets and little pop-up shops and stuff as well that I'll go to on the weekends and sell our almonds that way. So I have to say almonds are one of my favorite things. And I've actually <laughs> already been on your store filling my little shopping cart up, which reminds Perfect. me I need to go back and like check out so that it will yes. actually come to my house. I ship nationwide. Unfortunately, I don't ship outside of the United States yet. There's too many other Oops, I would have to jump through to do that. <laughs> That's all right. We'll just say yet. Yes. Yet. So Jenny, did you grow up on a farm yourself or what's your background? I did. So I grew up, I'm a fourth generation farmer. I grew up in Chico, California, which is a small little town about an hour and a half north of Sacramento. It's about five and a half hours from where we are now. My family farmed what I call almonds, <laughs> which is the same thing as almond. But when I grew up, we called them almonds, which is just weirdly in California, there's little pockets and it's divided where half the state says almonds, the other half says almonds. When I grew up, almond was what everyone called them. And I had no idea that there was another way of calling them anything but almond. <laughs> But I grew up farming almonds and walnuts with my family. So my dad farmed with his two brothers and his father. Like I said, it was a fourth generation in, in that area to farm. And then I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, which is an agriculture school here in California. And I met my husband, who was also a fourth generation farmer, but he lived here in the Central Valley and his family farmed almonds. <laughs> so we... We graduated college and came here to Kern County and started farming with his family. So it's a, we're both fourth generation farmers, but it's a fun little thing that I say. I used to farm almonds and now we farm almonds. 
Do people give you a hard time for not being from there, despite being from the same kind of farm in the same state? Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, people know just when I started, when I moved here and said Ammons, people are like, oh, you're not from here, are you? Like they they knew. But yeah, I mean, I, I had to make my own path into farming and I had to find my own, you know, my own niche and what I was in. I mean, my my husband jokes now because I am pretty well connected and, and know a lot of people in the in the community that now when we go places, everyone knows me and he doesn't know anybody. <laughs> so it's it's a funny little thing when you move and it's a we live in a big community now. I mean Bakersfield is our closest town and it's a half a million people. There's well over a million people in our county. And we're we're a small little, I mean, for the Central Valley, that's a that's a smaller county. There's a lot of people in California. But where I grew up, it was a town of less than 100,000 people. And it was a smaller agriculture community. And now it's more of a, you know, there's a university there as well now. So it's, it's grown up a little bit itself. But it was an adjustment moving where I grew up the lot, the plots of land were smaller. It was, it's still a much more family focused farming community. There's not as much corporate agriculture, I would say up there. And there's a lot of streams and rivers. So the, the pieces of land, you know, aren't all symmetrical. <laughs> and I moved down here to the, the Southern end of the Central Valley. And it was a later developed into agriculture later than the other parts of the state. So everything's square, which was so weird to me. <laughs> and it's it's much more larger farms. We have the biggest farms in the state are, are farm near us and our neighbors on the farm. So it's very different. I mean, there's farms here that farm, you know, 20, 30,000 acres and we are like a teeny, teeny little speck compared to them. But our amount of acreage that we farm, if we farm that same amount up north, we would be like, oh my gosh, we'd be a big farm. So it's it's so crazy talking back to that perspective comparison and how things can change just about 400 miles away from each other, how dramatic things can be so differently. We've got kind of the opposite here. I grew up in central Iowa where, I mean, there are a fair number of 30,000 acre farms now. And moved up to Northeast Iowa where our farm is 300 acres. And that's, it's on the smaller side, but it's certainly not weirdly small. We're in central Iowa, 300 acres is like a big backyard, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm used to seeing a lot of equipment that would not be able to pull into a lot of fields here, let alone pull in and turn around, you know? So, but yeah, I got the same sort of like, oh, you're not from here when I moved mm-hmm. up here. And I'm like, I'm from two and a half hours away, you guys. like. I didn't need a passport or anything. We're still in the same state. Like, yes. you know, I know, not... but it's funny how sometimes it can feel like you're in a different state or a different country. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, California is a pretty big state, but we are so dramatically different across this whole state. I mean, even just we have such big, you know, we have Los Angeles and San Francisco and you can go in an hour from that and you'll be in farmland. But there'll be people in LA and San Francisco that don't even realize that we farm in the state of California. So it's, it's so, so different. And the things that we're able to grow here are so vastly different too. You know, on the coast, we had grow lots of lettuce and strawberries and lots of vegetables. But here in the Central Valley, if you try and grow that, it'd be too hot and it would all die. But then again, if you tried to move some of our trees over to the coast, it wouldn't work either. So we, we have such a great diverse portfolio here that we are able to grow such diverse crops. We have over 400 different crops that we grow in California. So it's pretty cool. That is yeah, really neat because we, we don't get that in Iowa, to put it nicely. I was thinking too, all three of us are on the farms where our, like are on the farms where our husbands are and where they grew up. So it, it is an interesting experience to, to feel grounded in a place where you, where you didn't grow up when your spouse, you know, you feel like they already know everybody, but then mm-hmm. I'm, I'm probably similar to you, Jenny, in that now we go places and I'm, I'm the one saying that's so-and-so from the school or, you know, cause he hardly leaves the farm <laughs> and I'm the one who actually probably maybe meets more people on a day-to-day basis than he does. Yeah. We're getting the same thing since I've gotten more involved with like school and local community stuff. And my husband was always, you know, we joke that when we got married, I changed my name to Jimmy's wife. And now that there are people who know me and not him, he's just like, well, who was that? You know, how do you know are that? They from I'm here? like, did you know I've left the house at least like once this week? Like, yeah, I got out too. So Jenny, can you tell us a bit about some of your off farm work? You were telling us that you do some work in water 
advocacy and uh, conservation and things like that, which I'm sure is a big issue in California? Yes. So my off-farm pain job is I work for what's called the Water Association of Kern County, and it is a nonprofit, and it's solely for water outreach and education. So back in the 1950s, California built what's called California Aqueduct. So we built a series of canals and reservoirs that moved water from the north where it rained a lot, or it still does, to the south where it doesn't rain as much and where our predominant most of our population is, is in the southern part of the state. So we built these aqueducts, but there was a lot of lack of knowledge, I would say, about why these aqueducts were, putting, were being put in and what their use was for. So the Water Association was founded to kind of educate people on the purpose of them and what they would be used for. And over the last 70 years, it's transitioned to more of just a general water education. We have a lot of uses of water in our state. Obviously, the urban, we have a, millions of people <laughs> in our state. So they take a lot of water as well, but we have, you know, we're the largest agriculture state in the nation. And we're technically, if we were a country, we would be the fifth largest country of agriculture production in, in the world. So we, we grow a lot of food. So that also takes water. And then we have a high environmental concern in our state as well. So they require a lot of water to keep flows and streams at appropriate levels and to honor different ecosystems and such as well. So there's a lot of demand on our water and there's not a growing water supply, but there seems to be a growing demand for water. So my balance is educating people on those varying different demands and trying to get people to focus on conservation. So my organization is made up of municipalities, our city purveyors, our agriculture districts, our water, general water districts, and it's made up of everybody. So I have a balance <laughs> every day. It's a balancing act of trying to keep everybody happy and make sure everybody is aware of everybody's water needs. And not one is better than the other, but that we all need to do this together. So different ways that consumers um, residents can focus on water conservation efforts at home, as well as kind of an education about what ag the agriculture community is doing for conservation as well. So it's a fun thing. <laughs> I just got done with our large water summit was this last week. So I had 350 water professionals gathered for a large water conference that I organized. And then we had a big water festival two days later for the residents to learn about water conservation efforts at home. So it's a fun job. I, I enjoy it. It helps me kind of combine my, my, my love for advocacy. I'm a big advocate for agriculture, but my passion for water and its needs as well. So how do we support people in dealing with places where agriculture and the rest of the world have some problematic intersections like water conservation without folks just getting really defensive and angry? It seems like both sides tend to really just jump on how the other one is causing all the problems without ever slowing down enough to think about how we can work together on these things. It's hard. I feel like a lot of our issues come from not listening to other people or maybe even, I hate to say it, but not respecting the other person's opinions. And I feel like that can be said about so many different, I mean, so many different issues and topics that we face, but it really is understanding the other's perspective and figuring out what's the root cause. So conservation can be so hard because, hey, you have more water than I have. How come you get more? And why do you get more? hey, you're not doing your part. So it, it can be really challenging. So I think it's important to, you know, break that into back to, a, back to our other topic, perspective and understanding, you know, why, why this person might need or why this sector needs water. But, you know, like we were saying, we grow, we have some of the most unique crops that we grow here in California that can't be grown in so many other places. And, you know, we hear that a lot. Well, why don't we just grow almonds in Iowa instead? You know, they might have water. Let's just move the farms there. Well, it doesn't work like that. Like the trees would literally die. It's, and it takes, like we said, years for these trees to reach maturity, to harvest. And it, we can't just pick up farms and move them. 
Are there places where we probably shouldn't have as much agriculture as others? Probably. But are there places where we probably shouldn't have as many people as other places in our state? Probably. So it's it's that balance of, you know, finding and understanding why things are done the way they are and, and, and understanding each other's perspectives and being respectful. I find that so important that we we oftentimes don't respect other people's opinions or we don't respect them enough to listen to what they have to say. So I feel like a lot of that is is getting over those those barriers and and really listening to their perspective and maybe we can all reach some common ground. Well, and I know as a farmer it can be really hard to respect people who don't have a good understanding of what we're doing or why we're doing it and it's it is hard to give a rat's ass about their golf courses or thinking that we shouldn't use any chemicals or what we should feed our animals or whatever else it is when we're like, but we're literally putting the food on your table. So maybe shut up and just let us do our work, but it's not a real good way to like build community and come to agreement and understanding to just be like, because I said, so, you know, we have kids, we understand that because I said, so has never gotten anyone to just agree with whatever's going on. You know, and I think it is really important to slow our own role as farmers and also try to be more understanding of people, even if they are wrong, about why we're doing X, Y, and Z, as frustrating as it can be. You know, it's... I think that's where the education comes into play a lot, too, is where people really, there's a huge disconnect between, I mean, I live two miles from Los Angeles, and they honestly don't even know we exist, I feel like, most of the time. So there's a huge disconnect there and what is local to them and where, where their food comes from. There's just... If, if people had, the general public had a better understanding about, you know, why it's important to grow food here in the United States and why you don't want your food coming from foreign countries. Like California has the highest food regulation standards in the world. And we are growing here, this food here, the safest way we possibly can. We are one of the most regulated places and we have the most amount of laws here regarding our food production. Trust me, you don't want food from, from other countries. You want it from here. This is where the place, the safest place we can grow it. There was a recent economic study that just came out from one of the universities that said over the last five years, the regulatory cost for farmers to farm has gone up by 500%. So we are paying 500% more to, in regulatory fees today than we were five years ago. And that's solely to make our food the safest it can be. So I, I don't know where else you would want your food to come from. I, I made the mistake a few years ago of signing up for an email newsletter of all of the federal food recalls. Oh my gosh. And that's really one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Like... <laughs> You know, and folks here, I mean, even in the Midwest where we can grow so much stuff are getting antsy about, you know, the grocery stores being understocked and like you wanted your food cheap, you bring it in from overseas. This is what happens when shipping gets disrupted. Like this is, that is the trade-off we made. And I understand that for a lot of families, you know, cheap food is a necessity, but this is what we're trading for that. And that's, you know, it's, it's hard to explain to folks, but it is the way it is. So yeah, I try and do that on my social media channels is try and educate people about the seasonality and of local food. So I think that's really important too, is learning the seasonality to how things are grown. Like if you're buying blueberries in January, they're probably not grown in America, but you see them at the grocery store and you think, oh, I, sh I can buy them. So it's kind of the retraining our mind to the seasonality of food. It's not grown 365 days a year in one location. You need to, you need to learn what's seasonally grown in your area so you can support those farmers in your area or else you probably most likely won't have farmers in your area for too much longer if you don't support them. So I think a lot of that's what I try and do on my social media channels is try and educate people on that seasonality. And when, when there is fresh produce, eat it, buy it in large portions and you can freeze it. And so you can enjoy it in the summertime or 
you know, can it or jam it or whatever you want to do, but support those local farmers when they are seasonally available. So you can, you know, have that freshness all year round as well. Well, I know for myself, one of the most frustrating things is how many parts of at least the upper Midwest are food deserts, you know, that Mm. we live in a place with some of the most fertile ground in the world. We grow all this, almost none of what we grow actually feeds humans. And, you know, so people look around and they're like, but we're growing all this. Why are groceries expensive? And like, because you're not eating field corn, Mm -hmm. you know, and it is just, it's frustrating. Anyway, so one of our goals with the podcast has been to connect with other farming families. And so what have your biggest challenges been raising little ones on your farm? (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. Challenges, plural. Yes. I mean, kids, I love, I honestly, I grew up on the farm. I grew up in the middle of our farmland and I, I loved having that opportunity to, you know, my dad was driving through checking fields and I could just hop in with them and hang out with them for a bit until he had to move on and go do something else. Or, you know, I, I raised 4-H and FFA animals my whole life. So I always had sheep and pigs in the backyard. And I just loved that aspect of life. And I knew that when we had children, I wanted the same thing for ours. So I, I am so blessed that it was about three years ago, we bought our homestead here, which is on one of our pieces of land. So we, we were able to move out here to the country and, and grow our little homestead or for our fruit orchard and our chickens in the middle of our almond orchard. And I am so blessed that we're able to raise our kids here because I see, you know, if we go outside and just play and just do chores all afternoon and they have so much fun. I mean, my, my son loves to go in the reservoirs. We have reservoirs to irrigate our orchards and he loves to go in there and catch tadpoles and, you know, catch frogs. (laughs) I mean, there's no better childhood than that. It is so fun. But of course, I mean, teaching them, you know, chores is not always a a fun thing either. So that they're responsible for, you know, cleaning things and picking up poop and things like that is not always the best thing. But, you know, I think it's good for them to be raised, you know, in the, in the, on the land and, and in an environment where they can just go outside and not have to worry about, you know, busy cars driving by in a city street and, you know, like we talked about earlier, how we're able to grow so much here. I mean, we have in our garden, just for us, we have, you know, tomatoes and and squash and melons and cherries and so much stuff that they're able to appreciate and just literally pick off of a tree or a bush and enjoy just fresh off the, off the land. And that, that I think is, is my goal to raise our children with an appreciation for the land and an appreciation for what we're able to do here. But by no means does it come easy. (laughs) Kids don't always want to do the chores and do, you know, be a part of that. But I think at the end of the day, I think that they will have an appreciation for this. And, you know, my daughter is four and she wants to be a farmer and she wants to, to, you know, raise all of the things and be a part of our family. So our family farm. So I think that that to me is a, is a success. And my son keeps saying he wants to be an engineer so he can build things to make things easier for the farmers. So I'm like, go for it, kid. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> Those are both so, great career choices. Getting yes. down to the parenting nitty gritty, since you live in a hot place and presumably not in the middle of town, what percentage of the time are your kids actually fully dressed? <laughs> I have a five-year-old and a four-year-old. My kids have never fully dressed. If it's well, about freezing, I mean, any they're chance, half naked. <laughs> any chance they can get, they want to jump in that pool. Because, I mean, when it's 100, 110 all summer long, man, it is hot. So they pretty much live in the pool for a majority of the summer. But yeah, it gets pretty hot. So when they're running around in swimsuits or underwear and tank tops and Crocs all afternoon, then that's that's pretty much the summer attire. But we do live, I mean, kind of near a road. We we live down the street from one of our processors that we send our almonds to. So in the summertime, there can be semi trucks and things driving by. So we have to be a little modest when we're in the front yard. But, I, uh, you know, speaking of the shrubbery in their front yard I went out last summer and found both of my kids sitting buck naked on top of their climbing dome waving <laughs> at milk processors and folks who were driving by I was like yep that's that's my kids one of them's hanging upside down the other one's just sitting up there they're both naked like as long as they stop by the time they hit high school mm-hmm. I feel like that will be my cutoff like 
14 is probably my cutoff on that yeah, one. That, that's your line, is it? Yep. And what kind of sunblock do you use on your kids? Oh, gosh. Whatever's on sale at Target. Fair enough. Some people <laughs> have some real it. feelings about it. And some people are like, I don't know. It's I got it on them. I feel good about it. I'm, I, I, we always get big hats for them in the summertime, the big floppy hats. So I'm more of like an adamant person with the hats because I want them to, you know, be as protected as they can. I'm not very good at the sunblock like reapplications throughout the day, which I blame because I, I have Spanish and Italian blood. So I have more of that olive complexion where I, I don't really like get sunburn really, but I married an, an Irish German man. So he's pretty white as white can be. And unfortunately our son inherited his genes. <laughs> so he needs the sunscreen. So he, we always make sure they have those big floppy hats all summer long to keep them covered. And my son also realized that my husband wears long sleeves and long pants every day, 365 days a year to keep him protected during the summer. So my son copies him and does the same thing. When he goes to work with dad in the summer, he wears the long sleeves and he keeps himself protected. So I think that's cute too. <laughs> I'll tell you as someone from an Irish family who's already had skin cancer, mm -hmm. I still have trouble getting sunblock reapplied on anybody in our family. Yeah. And I am also switching to the long sleeves on pants this year, I think, because it's not worth trying to keep sunblock on everyone. Yeah. Especially if they're in and out of the water all the time too. It's, you know, then if every time they're out, you have to be putting it back on again. You can't really and, keep ahead of it. And then getting them to wait like five minutes after you apply it and not just jump right in the pool. I'm yeah, like, that would right totally, that, I don't like, that just totally counteracted everything I just did. Like wait five minutes. You can yeah. wait five minutes. Not well, even the minute. fabled 30 minutes after eating that we used yeah. to have to try yeah. and do. But. Right. And like the minute they start getting dust and corn pollen and hay chaff stuck to the sunblock. And then they're like, of course, I'm going to let you rub in another layer. Of course, that's going to happen. <laughs> a little bit of exfoliating while you're at it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what is your favorite part about the ages that your kids are at now? Well, it's fun because they're, they're past the baby stage of life, which is difficult. And they're in the part of life where they can actually like do things themselves which is good and bad at the same time. I mean, they can put themselves, I mean, they're not really in car seats. They're in like boosters and normal things. So they can buckle themselves in a car, which is its own miracle in life when you're a mother. But the fact that they can get themselves dressed in the morning and are, you know, fill up their water bottles and are ready to go and that they can have their own chores. Like they have their own thing. As much as my son hates it, like he has to pick up the dog poop and that's his job and he can do it. And, you know, they have to empty the dishwasher and they can do things things on their own, which is a, a miracle in motherhood. I love that stage of life when they're, when they're learning to do things, but I am definitely like a, I'm an attention person. Like I, I like detail. So it, it kind of pains me too, to watch them like put silverware away in the drawer. And I'm like, Oh God, that's not how I would do it. But I have to just let you do it. And I have to just sit there and let you figure it out. Or, you know, when my daughter gets herself dressed in the morning, I feel like she breaks more hangers than she like gets closed down and it's the, okay, I have to like, let her figure it out on her own. I can't be in there doing a four, but it's, it's an, I, I think this is a fun stage of life and they're able to help with things on the farm. And it's just, it's just fun. I like this. And I like it when it's not all full of attitude, because let me tell you, my four-year-old sometimes is going on 14 and she's full of all kinds of sass. So that part of childhood, I'm not necessarily a big fan of. <laughs> Have you found that your kids are like 5,000 times more motivated to do it themselves if it's something you probably don't want them doing than when it's something yes. you're supposed to be doing? Yeah. If I tell them no, like, no, don't do that, then they want to do it. So yeah. yeah. It's I've that balancing act. Yeah. Like my five-year-old could probably figure out nuclear physics if it was something I had told her not to do, but I'll tell her to, you know, take her own shirt off and get in the bathtub and it's, I'm too little, I can't. And I'm like, that's interesting. You know, that's real interesting because I've seen the stuff that you're capable of and I guarantee you're capable of this, but you know. Yeah, I think that's possibly. fascinating too is realizing what they really are capable of doing is just so cool. I mean, you know, we, we plant all of our pumpkin seeds and we rototill the, the orchard and rototill the, the pumpkin part and 
everything that we have back there and the kids are in it. I mean, they, they can push that thing and they can plant it. And my son's in charge of the irrigation and he moves the sprinklers around himself. And I mean, he does it all. And I'm like, man, if I, if he wants to do it, if it, like you were saying, if it's something that he wants to do, he can like, he's all about it and can do it. So it's really, it's really cool just watching like what they are capable of doing themselves. I think maybe it's one of my biggest frustrations as a parent though, because you always hear like, let them help with stuff. And I'm like, granted, like I, I know that's how they learn, but it takes so much longer. It yes. is so much messier. And patience. I was not, yeah. I mean, my husband would be the first one to tell you, I was not born with patience. So I have to just bite my tongue or walk in another room sometimes and just let them do it because I do not have the patience sometimes to sit there and wait 20 minutes for them to do something that would have made like taken me five. (laughs) Yeah, but it is how they learn. Jenny, we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at a county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure your domination. So I would say I dominate. So <laughs> I'm going to pull on a, a post I did a couple of days ago and maybe you guys saw, it, but I dominate not having my shit together. I am changing <laughs> my answer, Arlene. This will be my new answer. <laughs> I have so many different like things that I am a part of in, in life and in our community. We didn't even touch on it, but I am like the vice president of our county um Farm Bureau Board. I used to sit on our state Farm Bureau Board. I'm also a member of like our, our almond board committees. I am, I am spread thin as thin can be. (laughs) And I know from the outside, I get it all the time. Like, oh, how do you do everything? How do you like, how do you accomplish so much things? And I'm like, I don't like, I don't, I commonly like, I don't have my shit together often. (laughs) I forget things all the time. I'm always the last person to pick up my kid from school. I'm like, the teachers know I'm the last person to drive in for pickup. I don't like, I don't have my shit together, but I, I try really hard and I want I'm terrible because I want to be involved in so many things because I see the like the need and I have a passion for serving our community. I want to do so much. I often I oftenly overcommit myself <laughs> and I just don't have my shit together. But when it comes down to it, when I have like an event or a project I'm working on, I commit 120% to that thing when it's time for that thing. But then oftentimes, you know, other things fall to the wayside because I'm committed to that one thing at that time. So I would say that I could definitely win an award for not having my shit together. I like that. I, I worked with a life coach last year and probably the thing that made it all worth the money was the day I was talking about taking on something new. And she said, well, what are you going to stop doing? So you have time for that. And I was like, what kind of negativity is this? Like stop doing something. That's my husband's rule. I am not allowed to do something unless I give up something else. So like, I can't, I can't serve on any more boards unless I give up another board or I can't become a president of an organization if I, unless I give up something, another like officer role somewhere else. So I used to hate that role and I used to like resent him because he used to make me quit things. But now I like, I understand and I appreciate it now because I, I would be spread even thinner in life if I, you know, had, had more on my plate. So it is a, it is a shitty rule, I would say, (laughs) but it's necessary to, to fully commit to things you need to also like realize where you should probably let other people take things over too I kind of like the the dopamine hit of feeling like I'm doing a good job by not doing things Mm -hmm. like look at me not volunteering for something else yay me like that feels really good and I mean that's a pretty low stakes way to do it you know like look at me not volunteering to be president of this board I'm doing a great job I know. I say that to my husband. I'm like, hey, I said no like five times this week. You should be so proud of me that I said no. (laughs) The old me, I would have said yes, 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 and signed up for it all. (laughs) And I would have found some more things to say yes to, even if they hadn't asked me to do it. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Want to come up with some new ideas, and they would have said, great, you can run with those. Mm -hmm. So, So Jenny, no, no, Arlene, I have one more question. Go for it. Okay. (laughs) Jenny, since you said you're from the Bakersfield area or you live in the Bakersfield area now, how much White Yoakum do you listen to? Would you say it's a lot? A good amount. I've seen him a time or two in concert. 
So yeah, we have the Crystal Palace. If you guys are at all familiar with Buck Owens Crystal Palace, we were the, what do they call us? The Nashville of the West or West Coast Nashville. Lots of country people come to come to Bakersfield to record or do, do concerts. So it's it's fun. We've seen, we've had a lot of big names come to very small venues to perform here. So it, it's pretty cool. It is fun. I didn't even know that aspect of it when I moved here. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So they're, we have this great little, it's, it's a restaurant essentially, but it's a, it's an event place where the original Buck Owens band still plays every Friday night Who of who is still alive in the band. So it, it's cool. We've got some great names here. That's an appreciation that not everybody has of this area, but we are we the got to, of the West. We got to see Dwight at the surf ballroom. Oh eight or nine years ago now. The surf is, you know, the last place that Buddy Holly got played before the plane crash that he was killed in. I don't know how Dwight gets into those pants. Like that's a, that's a look, but he puts on a hell of a show for anyone who hasn't seen him live. He's a, he's a hell of an entertainer. Anyway. Okay. Now Arlene. Now All right. Permission granted react. to move yes. into our cussing and go. discussing segment. <laughs> We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe, where you can leave your cussing and discussing entries for us, and we'll play them on the show. So go to www.speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language, and you can leave us a voice memo, or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com, and we will read it out for you. So Katie, what do you have to cuss and discuss this week? FedEx and UPS. I, uh, I work remotely, Jenny, for a tech company, and my coworkers really don't seem to understand that there's not like a FedEx Dropbox like next door, like there are in most urban places. And I am just frustrated. I also did not know that most FedEx trucks in rural areas are contract. So if they don't want to deliver to you, they don't have to. So FedEx mostly. Jenny, what do you have to cuss and discuss? Can I do it along the same lines? Because I'm going to complain about Amazon Prime because... <laughs> We have an Amazon distribution center, no joke, 10 miles from my house. Like there's a huge distribution center in our town, yet it takes me like four days to get packages. I'm an Amazon Prime member where I used to get them like next day. I know there's a distribution center right down there where I could get packages. <laughs> Can I just go walk there and like knock? Excuse me, do you have these yeah. things that I would like? And I don't get them. So I would I would really appreciate it if Amazon went back to their next day delivery service. And if my packages would start coming from Bakersfield instead of Las Vegas, that would be helpful. That's definitely a longer trip. <laughs> and what have you got today, Arlene? So I know that it's a little while away, although by the time this episode comes out, we may be in the midst of it because we are pre-recording. But I am cussing, trying to figure out what to do with my children during the summer. Because we're getting into that weird age I've got from seven to 16. So the oldest will be working and the 14 year old will have some chores around the farm to do, but we're, we also have a, an 11 and a seven. And we're in that strange age of like, they kind of don't really want to do summer camps necessarily. Mm. Although I can probably sign them up and make them go. But yeah, we're just in that weird age of like kind of too young to have a job, like a real job job and too old to do like camps, daycare, that kind of stuff. So I just don't really know what we're going to be doing. And I don't want to hear a lot of I'm bored. And I mean, I know when they say that I'll give them chores, but I don't want to be just like a, an event coordinator this summer, but I don't really know what I'm going to do with them either. So I guess I'm just pre-worrying about something that hasn't happened yet, but that's where my head's at for today. Yeah. I have that same problem. I feel like I am like an event planner for my children all summer long, trying to figure out, okay, well, I still have to work. So yeah. you got to do something all summer. Yeah. yeah I exactly. have every, I have every week organized to what camps they're going to be at. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to start doing the Okay. So what are your friends doing? And then contact mm -hmm. that person's mom or dad and figure out, you know, where, where's your kid going this week or that week? Or will they sign up for this one? Cause my kid will only want to go if they know someone there and at least school, you can just send them and their friends are there and it's easy, but. And it costs yeah. a small fortune. I feel like oh, camps yeah. are so expensive and I'm <laughs> yes. like, I have to send two of you there. Like, Oh my gosh, I just spend like my life salary spending my, taking my children to summer camps. Yeah. Yeah. You think once they're out of, out of the daycare stage that then it's school. Oh wow. School's free, but yeah, not the summer part. Well, and this is the thing too. I was an only child. So growing up in the country, I was always game to like 
go places. Mm-hmm. My kids, I signed them up for T-ball last night's the first night. I'm all excited. You were going to go to T-ball. I said, you guys ready to go to T-ball? No, thanks. We'd rather stay home and play. Like, cool. I'm glad because it's cheaper and now I don't have to drive you to T-ball. But like, what am I supposed to do with you guys? Like, we're never going to leave the farm. You're going to be those weird kids. So they're not going to be allowed to stay home during the summer because we'll get too weird. <laughs> Naked on the climbing dome. Yep. So on that note, thank you so much, Jenny, for joining us today. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your farm and buy some delicious almonds or almonds or however you pronounce it? Yes, you can find me at almondgirl.com for all of the the nutty necessities that you need. And then at all the social media platforms at Almond Girl Jenny. So I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the places at Almond Girl Jenny. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. Yes, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making the show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you'd like to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We're always in search of future guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.